Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in the season that the church calls Lent, which is a beautiful um, season that begins with Ash Wednesday and goes up through Resurrection Sunday. Um, we historically, this, this piece of this passage has been used on Ash Wednesday because what it, what it looks to is as uh, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, that's the path that we feel like we, we travel as a church celebrating through Lent, that we are on this path towards Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. So historically, this has been used as a text for the parallel journey of the church through the season of Lent. Justo Gonzalez points this out, and I think it's um, really beautiful. The path that Jesus follows to Jerusalem is not a straight path, nor is the discipleship journey of Christians symbolized in the Lenten journey. Furthermore, the way to Jerusalem is not entirely one of sorrow and preparation for pain and death. It is also a journey of joy and promise with many high points, even frequent banquets that provide occasions for Jesus both to feast and to teach. Similarly, the path of discipleship has both its highs and its low points, its victories and its defeats, its moments of daring and obedience, and its times of shying away from the implications and consequences of faith and obedience. Today, I want to talk about uh, these striking words of Jesus as he's walking this path and having these exchanges with people who are talking about maybe following Jesus, and he speaks to them of the cost, the cost of following Jesus faithfully. And Justo Gonzalez's quote here reminds us that this is not only a moment in the gospel that serves as a gateway to the journey into Lent leading up to Resurrection Sunday, but it also kind of follows for us as we go through this section of the Gospel of Luke, the reality of being real people working on following Jesus, right? Holy, broken, glorious messes. This is a real gritty stuff of being a disciple of Jesus, loved and stumbling and forgiven on our path of following the Lord. And so I want us to just pray as we get started and we're gonna dive right in. Um, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are here with us today. I confess to you, as I have said through this week, um, there's some other words you've spoken that I love so much more than these. Uh, these feel kind of harsh and um, a little intimidating, but Lord, I, I trust your heart in everything. We trust you. So I pray that um, the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart from this week would come across in a way that honors you. Holy Spirit, you are gathered as we are here in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for that. So warm our hearts, refine these words, and, and bring forward into each of us that which you would have for us as we, as we just long to follow our Lord uh, more closely in his name. Amen. So when you read through the Gospel of Luke, and maybe you've noticed this in our Sunday to Sunday, but we also encourage you to be reading these Gospel accounts throughout your own week. I feel like this section of the Gospel of Luke feels a little bit like the back and forth of a ping pong game or maybe like the up and down of a roller coaster, all in pretty short, short piece of time. If you read just even chapter nine, which at my, um, my other Bible is like less than one spread on your Bible pages, right? The chapter, we see this back and forth going on. We see this moment just a little while ago where uh, Jesus asked the disciples, like, who do people say I am? 
and they answer a couple different things. And he says, who do you all say I am? And Peter answers rightly, you are the Messiah. And you feel that like, oh, like the upward part of that moment, this declaration. It's like, you're right. You're right. That's who I am. And then all of a sudden, this roller coaster down, because in response after that, he says, and you're going to take your cross and you're going to follow me in my suffering. And if you were sitting there listening, you must have been like, wait, what? That just took a major turn from what I expected. You are the Messiah. And I was expecting that this was going to be really great, good king of Israel and Jerusalem kind of news restoring the temple. But instead, in 9, starting in 21, Jesus says this. Oh, let me find my place. As says, yes, you're the Mess- I'm the Messiah, you're right. And he strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things. What? Do you feel that after like the crescendo of realizing you're sitting in front of the Messiah? The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. And when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You guys, if you were sitting there in that moment, wouldn't you have been like, wait, this is not the storyline I was expecting. This is something very different. So feel that crescendo. Like, let yourself feel that. This took a turn. But then we go right back up again, like literally mountaintop up where Sam taught last week. This moment where Jesus, along with three, James, John, and Peter, ascend to a mountaintop to pray. And there the glory of our Lord is revealed. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. Divinity revealed. We're way up on our roller coaster again, right? And then they go back down that mountain. And they can't heal the demon-possessed boy. Jesus has to do it. And he says to them, after that happens, where does it come? Nope. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay and put up with you? Bring the son here. And he heals him. And you feel this like, we just had divinity revealed. And then we, oh, like we had a fall again right afterwards. Something down happened. And he again, coming out of this, foretells his death. Starting in 43b, Jesus says, coming out of this moment, everyone's being amazed with the greatness of God because he's just healed this demon-possessed boy that the disciples couldn't even. Everyone's amazed. He's so big. You feel that kind of feeling up again. And while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus said, he said, all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully. Remember, God the Father just said, listen to him, right? And now he says, listen to me, what I'm about to say. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what he meant. So he said this again. And then the disciples start arguing about who is the greatest. Read this chapter. Feel the up and down. Wait, you're going to start arguing about who's the greatest right now? I swear, just a couple verses ago, you couldn't heal a demon-possessed boy. And now you're going to argue about who's the awesomest among you? What is happening? You just failed and you're talking about who's greatest. And Jesus comes in and reminds them by taking a little child and saying it's the the lowering of self. He goes on in the same passage when they start to argue about who's best. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. 
for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest, a child in that culture, representing somebody who could give you no social equity. You, I mean, children of your own was a good thing, but if you like served another person's child or something, you weren't gonna climb any social ladders for that. There's no benefit. The least of these meaning, you don't get anything out of serving someone like this. But in the kingdom, I'm reversing everything. And so they go from arguing who's the greatest to being taught about this lowering of self. He's undoing the concept of greatness, culturally counterintuitive, considering not only their honor and shame culture, but also even ours, which we, we would deem more as a relevancy culture. Same concept holds, holds true. Who's gonna gain you the platform? Who's going to make you seem relevant? And Jesus is saying like, this is countercultural stuff, you guys. And we have to know that. And so we, then we get ourselves up to this, uh, this section, uh, 951. And we start to see this is where Luke says the path starts towards Jerusalem. And it's a long path, and there's a lot, like Yusta Gonzalez said, ups and downs that are going to happen along the way. But this is where the Gospel of Luke marks that it's a long section where Jesus now understands it's time to go to the culmination of my ministry And I know what that means. And I'm saying it clearly to you. And the disciples don't understand it, which is understandable in my point of view, but they don't get it in any case. This verse, uh, verse 51, I have a couple different translations up here to get the idea of it. Um, In one, the NRSV says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. The NLT uh, uses the word, he's resolutely set And both of these translations are very good for what the Greek is, but what we don't quite get as not reading it in its original language. um, So the the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, um, was rewritten into Greek for these New Testament believers who would be understanding the Holy Scriptures, right? So the translation is an exact translation that would point back to the same Greek words in Ezekiel 21, where we are told um, that... Ezekiel is set, is sent to set his face against Jerusalem. The language is the same in these two places. And Luke knew it, and and early readers of the scriptures would know this too. Ezekiel set his face against Jerusalem and was told to prophesy against the land of Israel. In other words, this language is completely uh, uh, prophetic. And it links back to this. And what's happening here is Luke's just trying to tie for his readers the breadth of the prophetic. He's saying, yes, this is a prophetic moment once again. This is happening again. But now it's Jesus's whose face is set. And Jesus knows in this resoluteness of his determination, he knows what's coming. He's just said it. And it includes suffering. And Jesus knows it and he says it. And so suffering and rejection and death are the consequence of this prophetic ministry. And it strikes at the core of the world's corruption here now in Jerusalem is where he's headed to call people to repent. Once again, this is the cry of the prophets again and again. And the prophet sets his face towards his destiny. And he travels steadily towards the city that kills prophets. Jesus's face is resolute. He has set his face and he knows where he's going. And so we're supposed to feel that in this moment, a new resoluteness in our Lord who knows where he's headed. And uh, Luke knows that pattern and early readers would have known this pattern, resolutely set on a prophetic path. As an interesting side note, we won't go deep into this this week, we'll talk more next week, but as his face is resolutely set, 
he and his followers go through Samaria. Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. Again, we'll get into it more next week. But they were not friendly. They had originally, uh, the, the Samaritans were, had been Jewish people who intermarried with other people. And so they just did not have good love for each other. Faithful Jews traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem would go two to three days out of their way on foot. Two to three days walking to avoid this region. But Jesus, with his face resolutely set, does not mind walking through an area of people who Jews would consider marginalized, to say the least. This is a little glimpse into the ministry that does not mind. It will go straight into a marginalized people, but they reject him. There's no hospitality. It's true. I find a little bit of humor in James and John's response. Should we call down fire? Well, aren't you feeling like the greatest again? You couldn't heal the boy, but you think that you're going to call down fire? Now, I'm also, is this hubris? Maybe. I also can get a little bit um, humbled by this because I've had prayers that I've prayed boldly that didn't come to pass the way I wanted to. And I don't stop praying. I pray again. But in any case, whatever they're backing for this, hey, you know what? They rejected you. Let's smite them. Let's just... Let's do this thing. This goes back again to Elijah, who did, as a prophet, call down fire in that competition between the prophets of Yahweh and the prophets of uh, Baal. Baal. I I don't know how to say that right. Sam will tell me later if I did it wrong. Or any of you can. Um, And he he did. He called down fire, and it killed, burnt up the offering, and it happened. But now James and John are like, hey, never mind, like, calling down fire to smite the offering to show the greatness of God. They rejected you. Let's like take them out. And Jesus rejects them and says, you're not, this is not what the ministry is about, guys. This is not the path. And so he says, no, no, we, this is not what we're here for. My My face is resolutely set not to smite everyone along my path, but to like bring saving grace, right? His face is set towards Jerusalem. So anyway, little moment in Samaria. But then Um, One of the commentators, I thought this is funny. There's a little bit of irony coming right out of the transfiguration, as I said before, where literally the voice of Yahweh boomed in the mountaintop. These two guys were there. They were two of the three witnesses to this moment. And God said audibly, this is my son. Listen to him. If they'd listened, they would have known that rejection was part of the necessary divine path that Jesus was on. Rejection in Samaria would not have shocked them if they had been listening, but they, they wanted it to be a different plot line. I also kind of understand that. They wanted this path to end differently. So Jesus rebukes them accordingly. This is not what my ministry is about. Let's keep going on the path. And here's where we land for most of our, our, our morning is where, where Luke summarizes a series of conversations about following Jesus. Now they would be on the path for a while, I don't necessarily think that these all happened in quick succession. It doesn't matter if they did or didn't. I believe that Luke was sort of giving a synopsis of like, as we were traveling, a series of encounters happened. And the conversations would go like this, as people would consider whether or not they wanted to follow this Messiah who was now set towards Jerusalem. And we see three different exchanges here. We'll go to the first. As they were walking, a man said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I stop right here at this one. And I think that what Jesus is trying to communicate is like, 
you might be thinking that we're on some kingly path to awesomeness. This is not a glorious, glamorous path set before us. When we talk about this in light of where we are today, talking about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, I want to share with you a moment where I feel like I tasted this a little bit. Here's the truth. This, this statement does not mean that everybody is meant to give up their home and be a uh, traveling preacher, okay? We see in the book of Acts, faithful people opening their homes for gospel kingdom purposes. So this doesn't mean following Jesus means to sell your house and to travel the world, okay? So it's not a thing for all time. We're supposed to get a sense of urgency. Remember, his face is resolutely set. So what is Jesus saying here? I think about a moment in my own life, and I share this with you just because, um, I, again, feel like story can prompt things in your own mind. I had a moment years ago, uh, sometimes when I'm, when I'm praying, um, I like to walk. It kind of frees up my brain from thinking too much. There's just enough thought about making my legs move that I can kind of open up my heart a little more. And sometimes I feel like I can, I can hear a prompting of the spirit back um, in a way that's more open and attuned. I say that in case you're like, you know what? Maybe I'll try walking in prayer. We try different things and see what works. And this doesn't always how it works for me, but I had this one prayer walk. It was really powerful. I am a nester. I love to make a nest. I love to be a mom. I love our little nest and making it cozy. I am a nester. And there was a season in our life where our nest was very disrupted. And I was living in a disrupted nest. And I didn't like it very much. And it was hard. And I was not having fun. And I thought, maybe I'll go walking and inform God that I'm not having fun in the nest right now. And I did just that. And I went walking and I was like, just sort of letting it all out. I was doing my own version of lament, but I hadn't gotten back to the ending closing yet in trust. And I was talking with God about how I felt about my nest. I was like, my home is not peaceful and calm and refreshing right now. And somewhere in my spirit, I heard, I heard the words. Do you know what I mean when I say that? There was nothing audible, but I heard the words, I had no home. This wasn't a one-up voice. You've been in those conversations. I confess I've done those conversations. Someone says something and you're like, yeah, well, I, da-da-da-da-da. And you like one-up it. No, this wasn't a one-up tone at all. This was something altogether different. This was the Holy Spirit saying to me in this, this way, saying, I, did I, I didn't promise you anything about your nest. I didn't even have a home. And now I'll tell you this, like this wasn't fresh this wasn't fresh words coming at me. This, I don't know how to explain it. There, except I was thinking, you know what? I need to not explain it. I'll let Jesus explain it. In John 14, where is it? 14.25, Jesus reminds us, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and hear this, remind you of everything I've said to you. What this is, you guys, this is one of the reasons that when you come here on a Sunday morning, you will rarely hear a thematic talk. We really get into the scriptures because for the Holy Spirit to remind us of what Jesus said or what God said or who God is, we need to get into the Holy Scriptures and read them and learn them because I believe in that moment when I was sitting there saying, this is really hard to be in my nest, the Holy Spirit reminded me of this verse, of this fact Wait, Jesus didn't have a home. Melissa, did Jesus promise you any specific thing about your home? Or is it time to think about how to be a follower of Jesus in that mess? 
And it was a loving rebuke to remind me the cost of discipleship might mean in this season a cost to my comfort and my ease. Will I still do that thing as a follower of Jesus in the space that doesn't feel the fuzzy way that I love? In that season, that was my cost. Will you still be there in the mess and do what I'm prompting you to help to bring forth what little pocket of healing I can bring? Will you be a part of that? What's the cost of following Jesus? So I share that with you because I think this, again, is not a call to have a simple formula of like, so get rid of your home. It's not that at all. It's Jesus reminding us, I, what do I promise you? What is the, there will be costs sometimes to following. And that was a cost that came for me in a season and, and, and God did beautiful things in it and it was great. So then you get to the next two things that he says when he's challenging us on the cost of what we might think this will be. And he says these two things that if I'm honest, I like to think more about the tone of Jesus sitting next to Jarius' daughter bed and saying, get up, little girl. I like the one, the tone that I hear of Jesus when he stands with the woman with the issue of blood and says, tell me your story. That's the tone I like. I don't love this tone as much, but let's unpack it a little bit and see what it is that we're talking about. So the man, another man said, I'm sorry, to Jesus, a man, Jesus says to a man, follow me. And the man replied, first, let me go and bury my father. Let me pause for a second. Most likely this man's father is not currently dead or he would never be free right now to be following Jesus and engaged in a conversation. One of the things that we can't quite grasp but we know about is the ties of family bond were altogether different than they are in our culture. We don't even have family in this city. That would be like the strangest thing. That one of the things that the eldest son was responsible for was to see through the burial of his father. To not do so would bring shame not only on the father but the entire family. What this man is saying, I have to see this duty through. We have no idea how long that's going to be. So we don't think that we're saying, like, can I just go to the funeral? We're thinking, like, my dad may have five years, 20. Like, I don't know. This isn't a really good time because I've got something else I have to still do before I can follow you. And Jesus responds and says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, some people think that this might mean, like, let the spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead. We've got work to do. Some think it might be because... um, in Jewish custom, there was like a 12-month gap. There was burial number one and then 12 months, and then you did this other thing. So like, don't wait a year. We can't just keep waiting. Most likely, he's not undoing Jewish custom for all time here. What, this is what we're supposed to hear because this statement would not go over well culturally. It sounds really harsh, but what it's really saying is, yeah, it's like, can you say to me, oh, I like what you're saying. It's not really a good time. I need a little bit more time, and then I'll come along. You're hearing urgency. There's no time for that. My face is now set resolutely. This thing is happening now. Hear the urgency in Jesus's response. Remember, Jesus redoes family order. He expands it. When his mother and siblings come to find him and they say, hey, Jesus, they're all looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? It's the people who listen and do the word of God. So he's not denying them. He's expanding the powerful cultural family dynamic to say this is now the people who get the family uh, elevation that our society would give to biological 
family members. It now expands beyond that. And we know that that's not like a dig against his mom because if you think of the moment on the cross when Jesus looks to Mary and makes sure she's taken care of by speaking from that tortured place to uh, one of the apostles to care for her after he's gone. So all that aside, he's not undoing family cultural things. He's expanding it. And he's saying, this is an urgency now that you need to know about. And so the last one is similar in that sense of urgency where another one said, I'll follow you, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, again, we've been echoing the prophet Elijah for a reason. So Elisha goes to follow Elijah and says, hey, can I go back and say goodbye to my family? And Elijah says, yeah, sure. Meet me back here in a little bit and then we'll go. It's okay. Then the urgency is what we hear now because now here we go again, but this time, no time. No time. And the the imagery that's brought up here about the plow, where he says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So what that is saying is like, if you're plowing and you're moving forward and you start looking back at what's happened before, you're you're not gonna plow in a straight line. That language may not be as familiar in how we do things, but I love what N.T. Wright said. It rang a little more true for me. It was, if you're singing a song, if Merck and Chloe were up here leading us in worship and started to keep singing forward while trying to like fix and focus on the verse before, we'd probably have a little bit of a mess in our hands. Like this is the time to move forward. New thing is coming. What we now call the new covenant Something altogether new. The presence of God with the people of God is about to be made new. Jesus knows that. The disciples don't yet. And so he's not undoing things for all time. What he's saying is, I know now the path that I am on. And there will be a cost to following on this path. And the thing that we're supposed to get from these these moments here together, this little cluster of conversations that Luke pairs together is that there's a reordering that's been ushered in. My kingdom purposes are at hand. We feel with these things urgency. We feel prioritization of kingdom purposes above anything, above those even cultural expectations of things like taking care of funeral arrangements. Like kingdom urgency goes above anything anything else and number three we see a willingness to pay a cost to be a part of this the first will be last pick up your cross this isn't about who's greatest I didn't promise you comfort this is altogether a different path are you willing to follow if there's a cost what's our cost what does it mean to be open to the spirit and faithful to follow what is our cost? What might it be? What, it might, what might it be um, in the workplace when something that just is not ethical is happening? What might be the cost to following Jesus? What might it be in your friend group? What might it be uh, in a protest in the public arena? What might it mean the cost for where you choose to put your spending dollars, where you donate your time or your efforts, where you speak up? Oh, where you step aside to elevate another voice. What might be the cost? Jesus is preparing them in this passage. One commentator said this, the cross that the disciples are to take so they can follow Jesus is not some magnificent final act of valor or obedience. It's a difficult walk that leads through denial, 
and abandonment. And we're going to see that through this journey of Lent. We'll see that the cross, this path to Jerusalem resolutely set. Yes, there'll be highs. There'll also be lows. And it will include suffering. And our Lord has warned us that that's true. Would you be willing to pay the cost to stay true to follow Jesus in the words of teaching of Jesus that we've been learning about all up until this point with his radical teaching and his radical moves? See, Jesus is reordering everything including former allegiances. And they are, he sometimes will call us to do behaviors that seem culturally deviant. Love your enemies, that's a big one, top of my list on culturally deviant. Doesn't make sense to the world around us. What does that look like? But it's the nature of the kingdom in Luke. And this ministry of the kingdom that Jesus has ushered in and said, the kingdom is here. Now I'm resolutely set for this new work that's going to come. This is the kingdom stuff. Fitness for the kingdom, ministry of the kingdom, presumes redefinition of kinship centered on who's willing to pay that cost, who's willing to prioritize God's purposes to that same extent. Here's the thing. This path that resolutely Jesus' face is set to, yes, it includes salvation, a path to salvation, and that is true and it's beautiful, But it's not just about that. Jesus on this path with the people and the conversations around him, he's doing a reordering of the people of God, a reordering of how the presence of God will even be present in the world after his ascension. We know that and we need faithful agents of God's purposes to be willing to respond to the spirit, to show love to God and people comes at a cost. Sometimes to our wallet, sometimes to our comfort, sometimes to our platform, whatever it is, it can come with a cost. And here's the piece that I just think of, and I look at this kind of saying that like, gosh, there's going to be a cost sometimes. Here's a part of the mystery. Yes, there are costs. There's also an absolute promise that this leads to abundant life, that you would have not just life, but life abundantly. How do those two things coexist? There's a bit of a mystery about kingdom purposes. There's a bit about mystery around kingdom methods of accounting, if you're counting costs. There's something in the accounting method of the kingdom that allows for there to be a cost of suffering and abundant life to coexist. There's something mysterious in that, but it makes following Jesus infinitely worth it. And I think in part it's because kingdom people know that there is more to come that we don't yet fully know. We count the cost because our aim is beyond that which we can fully know in this moment, and we believe that. So the question for us today is, what is the cost? I'm not asking you to seek after a cost. Seek after a disruption in your nest or something like that. It's not that at all. It's the decision to be resolutely set that when that cost comes, there's a cost to me to follow the way of Jesus, to resolutely decide that when the Spirit prompts, the answer will be yes. Yes, I am willing to pay a cost to my comfort, to my um, whatever it is, to my wallet, to whatever. Like I will pay a cost because there's something more in this kingdom game plan and I wanna be a part of that kingdom inbreaking moment. And Holy Spirit, if you say to us that this is a little pocket of that or a big pocket of that, we wanna be a part. And the cost can be different for everyone. 
I'm sure like everyone else here, I've been reading a lot of the news lately. And one of the filters when I'm reading about what's going on in the Ukraine, for me personally, in my place in the world, one of the filters I read is where is the church? Where is kingdom inbreaking happening? And where should it happen? Where does it need to be happening that it's not right now? And how do we respond? So I read the news with a bit of that lens on. And in that lens, I came across this Russian pastor, Alexei Markovich. And Alexei Markovich is a pastor in Russia who signed a letter against the Russian government and what they were doing in the name of Jesus. This will cost Alexei and the other nine pastors who signed it, presumably a great deal, arrest at minimum. And he was speaking in this message to other pastors. So give, give this a moment because he's speaking of the cost to a specific group of people. But I like where he's going with this thought. He basically says, I've signed this, but this is not for everyone to sign. If all pastors pay this same cost, Who's going to be the boots on the ground to do the other pastoral work? Like, it's okay if our cost is different. And he says it like this. The church's first calling is the proclamation of God's word. He's speaking to pastors, and he says, it happens in different ways. Pastors preach, theologians write, philanthropists give out bread. People weep with those who weep. Activists take to the square. It is important for each of us to see our calling and to fulfill it honestly before God, serving God and people. If I take this outside of his address to pastors and the different costs that you might bear for where you are, I see in it the idea that in fact what we need to do is be responsive to the Holy Spirit because our cost might be giving up of something so we can go serve bread. Our cost might be taking to the public square. It might be sitting with those who are weeping or mourning at great inconvenience to us. Our cost is allowed to be creatively, expressively, as different as our creative and expressive God. The idea here is not to have a same cost, but to have a yes when the cost comes up, a resolute decision beforehand to say, Holy Spirit, give me the strength to say yes to where you're inviting me, us, into pockets of kingdom inbreaking. Because this new thing, this don't look back, we're plowing forward thing is heading towards a new covenant that altogether changes the way that God's presence is with us today. And we celebrate that every day, not just in Lent. We celebrate that every little mini Resurrection Sunday and there's 52 of them a year. I like to celebrate it on Tuesdays too. It doesn't matter. There's something new that's happened. And we're a part of that, and that's exciting, you guys. And so what I want for us to do now is to honestly say, we may not know the cost. Right now, you may know the cost. You may know, like, I've been asked, and I've been really hesitant to say yes. And that's okay. Let's process that. Let's make sure we're making good decisions and wise decisions. Discernment in community, huge. Really, really big deal that we discern things in community. But what I want for us to do is to just have a little bit of excitement looking at the resolute face of Jesus and saying, I want to have my face as resolutely set with a yes to God's kingdom purposes. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, um, we love you and we trust you that there's kingdom purposes still going on. And it's really hard to see sometimes, God, so Holy Spirit, ignite our hearts. Help us to be more than satisfied. Help us to be thrilled if our pocket of kingdom inbreaking is teeny tiny or a part of something huge that seems daunting. Help us to be faithful to know that you will help. You will help. You will empower. You will provide that which we need to have our yeses be supported 
um, by you and God's power for God's redemptive purposes in our world today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.